If we have a true concept of the Father and the Son, as we just saw biblically, woman's ordination is an immediate non-issue. It does not exist. The reason why woman's ordination is an issue is because the image of God in people's minds is not the biblical image. It's a, it's a distorted picture, a philosophical concept called the Trinity. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning is Adam, Eve, and uh, Adam and Eve versus the Trinity. And in looking at this subject, uh, I guess that's a bit of a strange title, particularly because of the fact that a lot of people uh, use the, the story, and particularly the marriage relation between Adam and Eve, to actually prove uh, the Trinity. That's, that's one of those uh, more popular verses that are used in that regard. So today we want to examine and revisit this particular story, the story of Adam and Eve, and see what we can learn, you know, try and learn some new lessons from familiar stories. And uh, in looking at this story, we want to remember something, that God in His wisdom has many times illustrated spiritual truths in the physical world. So that the physical gives us an insight and a picture of the spiritual. And uh, so this is what, one of the things we will find as we look at the story together. And uh, another thing that we want to find as well in this story that hopefully will develop as we go along, is that today there are a number of uh, current hot issues that cause all manner of debate and, and contention and, and differences of opinion. Uh, the Trinity is obviously one of them, but another one that's really uh, come up recently, uh, more so uh, than, than others, is the issue of uh, women's ordination to the gospel ministry. I think everybody's familiar with the fact that this is an issue, uh, particularly uh, in the church today, it's going to be the major issue. And so even things like that, we'll find that they can be answered, they can be resolved and easily understood in such simple stories that we all know, such as the story of Adam and Eve. So this is what we want to, want to see and see how we can resolve some of these issues by looking at the, at the illustrations of spiritual truths that God has painted in the physical world. Of course, the scriptures, as we, as we know, uh, the scriptures are not the only revelation that God has given of Himself. And uh, the scriptures are the textbook, but besides the scripture, we also have an illustration book. And that's, of course, the book of? Nature. The book of nature, as we all know. In the book of nature, we find that God has used nature to convey things about himself. Of course, in a perfect world, uh, that was very easily and uh, logically seen and, and manifested. As a result of sin, uh, that has been marred a little bit, but there is still a lot of truth contained there. And so, between the book of nature and the book of Revelation, and when I mean Revelation, not just the last book in the Bible, the, the, the whole Bible, between the written Revelation, between the Revelation nature, we have a harmonious, complete picture. It's like, you know, when, when, I, was, uh, when I was at college studying, you have the textbook, right? And, and in it are all the descriptions in words of all the different things. You know, I did nursing, so all the different body parts. But every now and then, there is an illustration. And in the illustration, you actually get to see how all the far parts fit together and work. And that gives you a very nice visual. So the book of nature is like God's illustration book of how everything 
works or should work. And we know that, of course, because uh, the psalmist tells us that in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. God is communicating something through the works of his hand, through nature. He's the God of nature, and he has left his signature mark throughout. And Apostle Paul is a lot more specific as to what nature reveals in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So one thing that particularly nature reveals about the invisible things of God is his eternal power and Godhead. Now, what does the word Godhead mean? This is a word that a lot of people use today with the idea that it represents three. Now, if you look it up in the, in the concordance or the dictionary, the word Godhead actually simply means divinity or the divine nature. It has no numerical connotation or hint whatsoever. It doesn't mean one or two or three or seven or any of these special numbers in the scriptures. And it's only used three times in the Bible. So it's going to be a very short study to find all the uses for, for God. So that's what it means. The nature reveals to us things about God, his eternal power and his divinity. That's what it means when we talk about God. Because as you know, a lot of people today, you know, when they talk, when we talk about the Trinity, they will say, no, no, well, I don't believe in the Trinity. And you say, well, what, what do you believe in, brother? They say, I believe in the Godhead. And, and you ask them, well, what the, can you tell me what that is? And then they describe the Trinity. And so it's, renaming it does not change it. it it's it's what, you, what you mean by the terms that you use. You, you know what I'm talking about? And so Godhead is one of those Bible expressions that somehow has gained a different meaning and, and is traditionally understood to mean uh, more than one person or, or a group of people. That's not how the scripture uses it. But nature is to tell us something about God. And particularly the things in nature that were made in God's image, which we know to be Adam and Eve. They're of all the creation on earth, they are the only thing that God actually indicated were in his image. And so when we look at Adam and Eve, we should learn something about God's eternal power and Godhead. That's what he intends in the creation of Adam and Eve. And so we're going to look at the story a little bit of Adam and Eve. And in 1 Timothy 2.13, there's a very short verse here. But here Paul tells us something that we all know. He says, for Adam was first formed and then Eve. Now, in the previous verse, he's just talking about uh, the woman not to usur uh, usurp the authority of the man. And, and the reason that he gives is this verse here. For Adam was first formed and then Eve. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought about why was it that Adam was first formed and then Eve? Okay, you don't have to answer if you want to think about it. Because it might confuse you. Maybe we can talk about it after. But if you've thought about it, that's good. I'm just wondering if you've ever thought about it. Because I'll ask you this question. Was it possible for God to create Adam and Eve together at the same time? Yes. He didn't. He first created Adam, as we all know. And then Eve was created. 
And we want to explore a little bit of the reason behind that. What, what is God trying to tell us? What is God trying to say? What's he trying to portray? Because Adam and Eve were created in his image and in his likeness, as the, uh, as the scripture tells us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we start getting a little bit of an insight as we, uh, as we unfold this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. We have a delineation of certain headship relationships listed in this verse. Here's what it says. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul here is revealing a number of uh, relationships, and the relationships have to do with headship. And so for to illustrate this, we see that, uh, of course, Christ is the head of the man, but the relationship I want to focus on is the fact that the man is the head of the woman and that uh, God is the head of Christ. So we have here a parallel relationship, so to speak, between two heads, God, God the Father, that is, and man. And the first man, of course, was Adam. Uh, they are both heads in this relationship. And therefore, also the parallel is between Christ, the Son, and the woman, they both have a head over them, correct? Now, Paul here is laying out this principle, this, this grand work, uh, for a particular reason. Uh, this relationship in, uh, that God instituted between man and woman was to reflect something, was to reflect the relationship between the father and the son. <clears throat> Because just as man and woman were created in the image and likeness of God, and we're going to explore that a little bit in detail, that likeness was also a relational likeness. In other words, the relationship that God intended to be between man and woman, as far as headship is concerned, was to be a reflection and a likeness of the headship relationship between the father and the son. That's Paul's point here. And so that's why God uh, created Adam and Eve the way they did. But the question is, why? Why did God want that for man and woman, for the human race? Why did God make the human race to reflect this particular image, the likeness and image of God? Particularly, of course, God and His Son, as, as we shall see as we go along. And the reason, the, the, the question we're asking is a why. And the answer is found in the same chapter of the book just a little later. It tells us in... Uh, 1 Corinthians 11:10. For this cause ought the woman to have power or authority on her head because of the angels. Well, there you go. That explains it all, doesn't it? <laughs> There's no need for me to keep going on and say, well, there it is. It's just for the angels. Now, if you've ever read this verse and have been puzzled, you're not the only one. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. Probably everybody who's read this verse was puzzled. When I first read this verse, I kind of stopped and thought, what? What's this got to do with everything he's talking about? And he, the, he says here, the woman has power over her head or authority over her head. And who's that power or who's that authority? It is the man. He says the reason for that is because of the angels. What do the angels have to do with man being the head of woman? Now, it's a very interesting exercise. If you go and look at uh, some of the Bible commentators when it comes to this verse, 
they really have no clue what Paul is talking about. And they, some of them just freely admit it. They say, we really don't have a clue what Paul's talking about here. We think it's this, we think it's that. And a whole variety of ideas and explanations, some of them are weird and wonderful. Some of them are like, yeah, that could be, but it still doesn't make sense. But we want to see what the scripture says, because when you think about the bigger picture of the great controversy, I really believe it helps us understand and appreciate a little bit. Bang. Excuse me, sorry about that. It helps us understand and appreciate a little bit more of the background and what is really taking place. Because if you keep in mind that the man and the woman were reflecting something about the relationship between the father and the son, and there, were, there was one point in heaven where that relationship between the father and the son was brought into question, and it was challenged, and it was uh, doubted and there was an angel in heaven by the name of Lucifer who started having problems with in particular who? Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And he started questioning why Christ has this unique relationship to the Father that nobody else has. And he started putting these questions and doubts in the angel's mind so much so that a whole third of them were persuaded that he's right and God is wrong and they joined his rebellion. The whole uh, point of the rebellion of Satan is that he was questioning the divine structure of authority in heaven. We cannot forget that fact. This is the background of the great controversy. And so, of course, as a result of that, when, when, him, uh, when he was questioning the equality of the Son and the privileges of the Son and the rights of the Son, and why should the Son be more privileged than all of us? Aren't we all children of God after all? This was his right line of reasoning. This would have been very well the line of reasoning that he used with some of the angels. And the angels say, yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that makes sense. And this is what was happening in heaven until a third of them, of course, were eventually expelled out of heaven. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters. If we miss the reasons for the rebellion in heaven, we will not fully understand the issues in the great controversy. To a lot of people, the great controversy is all about keeping the law of God or not. The issue is much deeper than that. Keeping the law of God is how we show allegiance to God's authority and God's position. And his authority and position was questioned in the person of his son. That is the key and core issue. Of course, when you take the side of God and uphold his authority and the authority of the son, you will naturally be in harmony with that which he says in his law. There is no question about that. But that is not the in and end all of the great controversy. And so the issues are much uh, deeper than just that. And so these angels were cast out of heaven. But don't forget that there were two-thirds of the angels that were still left in heaven. Isn't that right? And these two-thirds of the angels <coughs> had some questions left in their mind. Because Lucifer had raised a lot of these questions. Maybe things that they'd never uh, thought about. Things that they never wondered about. They must have thought, well, what did Lucifer really mean? I know God is right. I don't have a doubt about that. They stayed faithful. They were true. But there were questions there. The rebellion in heaven did not just leave all the faithful angels all good and well and everything was... It had caused a major, major rift in heaven. 
You know, some of these angels lost maybe their best friends. Maybe one was on one side and one was on the other side. And so there were questions there. There was something that God had to address, that God had to deal with, to dispel these questions and these doubts and to give a clear and convincing answer and demonstration to show that the charges and accusations and doubts that Lucifer had raised were not founded. And of course, the way that God did that is not by gathering them together in a meeting and telling them this is the, it is thus and so and everybody should believe me. Uh, God being the wise, amazing God that he is, he chose to do that in the next project of creation that was on schedule. Of course, it happened to be the creation of a very special world, the creation of humanity. And uh, we understand that particularly from uh, the spirit of prophecy that the rebellion in heaven and the casting out of the angels uh, from heaven was around the, very, around the time when the creation was about to take place. And so we find that in the creation of Adam and Eve, this was the backdrop, this was the background of what had just happened in heaven, the issues that had just been raised and the problems that had just been caused by Lucifer and by his rebellion. And when we have that in mind, it actually helps us to understand a lot more as to why God did things the way that he did when he created those special beings that were to be in his image and in his likeness. You with me so far? And so that's why God said that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who was speaking to who here? Okay, everybody, I think I'm hearing most commonly the father was speaking to the son. That's true. This is one of those verses that are often abused, unfortunately, because it is read with a certain bias. Uh, and that is that uh, this verse is referring to the Trinity because it says us. Us is more than one. That's true. Two is more than one. And so it was the father who turned to his son and said, let us, that is you and me, make man in our image and our likeness. And the reason we know that it was the father speaking to the son is because when they made man in their image and their likeness, the end product was how many beings? Two, right? So that tells you how many were speaking because two reflects Two, we're going to come to that a little bit later, we'll look at that, but uh, the image and likeness, brothers and sisters, was not only a moral likeness, it's not, it wasn't only a likeness in character, it was also a likeness on the physical level. In other words, God was not just a spiritual being, God was also a physical being. He created beings that were both physical and spiritual. And then he created them to have a certain relationship between them, and that relationship was to also reflect and be in the image of the uh, an image and likeness of the father and the son. So it wasn't just individually they are in the likeness, but their relationship is in the likeness and image of God. And that's important for us to understand because this helps us appreciate why God did the things that he did in that particular manner. And so as we saw in uh, Corinthians, this headship role between the father and the son was to be reflected between Adam and Eve, the first human beings. The father and the son were the original, Adam and Eve were in the likeness and in the image of God. Now don't forget, what was the reason? That father-son relationship was questioned in heaven. Christ, the 
only begotten son of God. There is no one else like him. That unique position, that's what makes him unique, by the way, is that he was begotten of the Father. That was questioned and challenged in heaven. <coughs> we know that because in the wilderness, when Satan and Christ met again face to face, the very first thing that Satan said was what? If thou be the son of God. You can tell this is the, the point that he is bitter about. This is what he has a problem with. That was his battle cry in heaven. If you're really the son of God, aren't we all sons of God as well? Adam and Eve were going to be the answer. And this is why Satan has a very special hatred for the human race. Because they were God's answer to his rebellion. And when we understand and appreciate what calling God has for us as human beings, it will put a whole, a different perspective on a lot of things. Anyway, let's just keep going. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And who was watching? The angels. All of them. Two-thirds loyal, and one-third who had rebelled and were cast out. They're all watching. This is the very next thing that's taking place. Here is a special, unique creation. And to all intents and purposes, and as far as we know, mankind are the only creatures that are said to be in the image and likeness of God. Angels are not referred to that way. And uh, I dare say that even other beings and other worlds that we understand to exist, we have no information about them being in the image and the likeness of the Father and the Son in this way. And so mankind has this very unique position that Adam and Eve were going to reflect the Father and the Son. And so Genesis 2, 7 says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And here we're particularly referring to the first man. Of course, this was the creation of Adam. Christ was the medium, of course, of creation. He came and, and got his hands dirty, so to speak. He became a foreign man out of the dust of the ground, a physical component. And then he breathed into him the breath of life. That's the spirit. That's the spiritual component. And so there is a physical and spiritual component. And the angels are watching and they're seeing that this is a true reflection of God, who is a physical being and also a spiritual being. This is one problem that the Trinity has. It seems to not uh, accept that God can be a physical and spiritual being and say, no, 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 the spirit part has to be separate. It has to be someone else. So it separates the spirit of God from God and creates a totally new and different and non-existent person. You see, God did not have two people when Adam was made. The physical and the spiritual together were united to make this living soul. And Adam was this living soul in the likeness of his maker. And when we look at Adam, particularly, in this relationship of headship, who does Adam represent? He represents God the Father. And so God was going to demonstrate that. He creates Adam first, alone. There's no Eve yet, right? And he creates Adam alone, and then we find this as well takes place. Genesis 2.19, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Why did God do this exercise with Adam? Are you looking to take your Bible study to the next level? 
Do you want to learn how to apply the Word of God in your daily life and share it more effectively with others? My Bible Academy is your online Bible school, offering a free, comprehensive, and dynamic program designed to deepen your understanding and engagement with the Bible. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and enroll to start a course at My Bible Academy today. The courses are designed to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to share your faith with others. Visit nadamansour.com to enroll and start your learning journey today. That's nadamansour.com. See you there. Why did God do this exercise with Adam? You know, it seems like it's, it's a nice story to tell the children, you know, Adam named the, the animals and that, and it sounds nice and cute, but there is a reason. He was, he was the king, that's exactly right. He was demonstrating to all the observers at the time the position that Adam occupied. Adam was made in the image of the Father, God the Father. He would have authority and dominion, as we shall see. And part of exercising this dominion is that he would name his subjects. He names the animals. And in so doing, he also demonstrates that his attributes and characters are, are like his maker. So the, uh, God would bring an animal before Adam, and uh, uh, he would say, Adam, what is this? And Adam would say, this is a cow. And he'll say, well done, Adam. Just what I thought. What's this, Adam? This is a dog. <laughs> and who's watching? The angels. They're observing this particular thing. And this, like I said, this is a reflection of the Father's position. Notice what it says in Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family in heaven and earth is named of whom? Of the Father. He is the head of the universe. He is the ultimate head. He is really the God head. God the Father is the Godhead. He is the source of divinity. One and only source of divinity. And the whole, so you see the parallel here. Adam names the animals. The whole family in heaven and earth is named of the Father. And of course, Adam was made king, as was mentioned. Psalms 8, 6 tells us that. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Adam was made king of this earth to have dominion. Just as God the Father is the king of the universe, he has dominion over the universe. This is a position of authority and a position of headship. Now this was not just some arbitrary idea that God decided, well, let's make man in this way. There was reason for it. And the great controversy backdrop helps us to understand that Adam was the head of the human race. And that is why it was when Adam ate from the fruit that humanity fell into sin. It wasn't when Eve ate. You realize that? Even though Eve ate first. So the fall of humanity is our fault, man's fault, okay, ladies? Even though the, the woman ate first, but because man was the federal head and representative of the human race, when he fell, all of humanity fell. That's who Satan was putting his sights on. That's who he, who he was aiming for. And Eve was used to get to that, to the head. He was that king. But we're still before the fall here. But that's just a little bit of a 
of what's coming. Genesis 2, 21 and 22. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. The first surgery in the scriptures is performed here by Dr. Jesus. And he puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib out. A very, very unique an even strange way to create something, right? Why didn't God just form Eve out of the dust of the ground and do the same thing he did with Adam? He didn't do that. Could he have done that? Of course. Why did he not do that? He was demonstrating something because Eve here was going to reflect whose position? The position of the son of Christ. And her relationship to Adam and even the way she came into being was to, as an insight, a small scale insight as to the relationship that the father and the son hold together because all the angels were watching. Now, the interesting thing about this is when you look at that word made in the Bible, in the Hebrew, it actually does not mean to create out of nothing. In the margin, some of you, if you have your Bibles, you'll find it in the margin. It actually says, build it. Eve was built. In other, way, in other words, Eve was put together from pre-existing material. The material came from where? Her husband. She wasn't made out of nothing. God actually took a piece of Adam, literally, and built that up into Eve. And that's why a little later, of course, Adam recognized that and said, She is born of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's a very significant point, as we shall see, because in doing so, God was giving a little bit of an insight as to his son, his only begotten son. In one sense, we could actually say that Eve coming out of Adam, she was begotten of him, right? Not in the normal way that we're all born from our mothers, but in a unique way that has never ever happened since. A very interesting insight. In Genesis 2, 23, Adam, of course, says here, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woman, because she was taken out of man. And so here we have a very unique situation where one being, Adam, is made first, and then another being is taken out of Adam, and she's made into this other person, and they both share the same nature equally. Is that right? <coughs> Who was more human, Adam or Eve? Yeah. They both were human. And Adam recognized that. Remember, the angels are watching and they're seeing here a small scale picture of the father and the son. You see, brothers and sisters, there was no one present when the son of God was begotten of his father before anything was created. No one was there to witness that fact. There were no angels. There was nothing because it was after that that everything was created through the son. Correct. And so here we see a little picture of possibly what it is like for one being to come out of another. Now, I want to say, be careful here. This is a small scale picture. This is not exactly how things were. But God is just simply demonstrating a principle that one being can be first and another can come out of him and be equal to him in nature. That's the point that's being made here. And the likeness uh, you know, of Adam and Eve and the father and son is not a likeness of gender. Obviously, the man is a male, the woman is a female. The, the gender is not the likeness, but there are common human qualities between the man and the woman that we all share. These are the likeness of an image of God and particularly the relationship of the man and the woman. And so the angels here were learning about this divine relationship 
between the Father and the Son. An event that they were told about, but that they had never witnessed for themselves. Nobody had. Even us. We are only told about that, right? And we believe it because God said it. Satan came up with the idea. He said, hold on a minute. You know, why is that so special? And he caused that big mess that he did in heaven and on earth. Here is what the Bible says about the Son of God. And this is a parallel to how Eve was built. Proverbs 8, 24 and 25. Jesus says through Solomon, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. Who was he brought forth from? His father. He was begotten. That's why he's referred to as the only begotten of the father. And, and this is why we firmly reject the absurd idea that Christ is a created being. Because he was not made out of nothing. Just like Eve was not made out of nothing. He was brought forth from the very substance and being of his father. He has the very same nature, the very same makeup. And the Bible expression for that is brought forth or begotten. So if anyone tries to tell you Christ is created, do not believe them. That is a dangerous heresy. It denies the authority and divinity of the Son of God. Hebrews 1, 3 tells us, Who being in the brightness of His glory, the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. Christ was the express image of the Father's person. He was just like Him. Not just in appearance, in physical form, but in nature and in character. He was equal to His Father by right of birth. Even though he came out from him and came after him. Just like Eve, who came after Adam and out of Adam. Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Here is the key verse that a lot of people use to prove the Trinity. Adam and Eve were one flesh, therefore the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one God. I am sorry, I don't see the connection. Amen. How can you use two to prove three? Yeah. If these two are one, and if that proves anything, it proves that there are two original, not three. You with me? Right. Yeah. Otherwise, God could have made three. Was it, was it possible for God to make three beings? Was that too hard for God? He didn't. Why? He's trying to communicate something to us. We totally miss that. And we use tradition, we put the glasses of tradition on and read the scriptures with tradition and abuse the pictures that God has given and create all kinds of strange ideas. And so Adam and Eve were one flesh representing the father and son who are one in spirit, one in character and one in nature. That's what's being demonstrated by this union of two beings here, two becoming one flesh. John 17, 21, we're going to come a little closer now. To, uh, to us. Jesus says that they all may be one, that's the disciples, all the believers everywhere, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they, may, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Christ wants the union between his disciples, his believers, to be a reflection of the union between him and his Father. That was very, very interesting and also a very high calling. So not only Adam and Eve were to be like that, but believers, us today, if we are believers in Christ, our union is to reflect the union between the Father and the Son, and in the same way as well. Well, how are the Father and the Son united? 
uh, as we saw, well, you know, by, by virtue of his birth, Christ is one in nature and character. He's one in spirit with his Father. Now notice what happens, this interesting verse, and hopefully that will bring it all together. In 1 Corinthians 6, 17, we're told, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. What's another word or definition for spirit? It is life, correct? Jesus said, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so when we're joined to the Lord, a miracle takes place, brothers and sisters, a spiritual miracle. And just because we say it's spiritual, it doesn't mean it's theoretical. It doesn't mean it's any less real than the physical world that we are more familiar with and interact with. It doesn't mean it's just a theory and this is the words we use to describe it. It is a real, literal miracle that happens on the spiritual level where God joins the spirit of His Son and your spirit and fuses them into one. We actually have the spirit of the Son and it becomes one life. So that the life that we now have is no longer ours, but it is whose life? The life of the Son. And that union is a reflection of the union between who? The Father and the Son. In other words, the Father and the Son are one life. And that is the life they bestow upon us. The Bible refers to that as the Holy Life or the Holy Spirit because God is holy and He is, of course, Spirit. So Adam and Eve reflect the Father and the Son. We also, and the union we share with Christ is a reflection of that. And just in the same way that, uh, you know, when, well, we'll come to that, but when God created everything, uh, He Everything is living. Everything that is living has the breath of God in it. Isn't that right? It has life in it. In the same way, everything that is the offspring of Adam and Eve also has their life in it. When we're born into this world, our first birth, we receive whose life? The life of Adam. The dying life of Adam. That's why we require a new birth. Because we are on death row when we are born into the first Adam's family. You realize that? We come into this world with a dying life. And praise God, we have time whereby we can choose to be born again. And receive the vibrant, everlasting life of the Son of God. That's why he's referred to in the scriptures as the last Adam. And then in Genesis 3.20 we're told, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Every other, creature, every other human being that would come into this world would come through the direct agency of Eve. Isn't that right? She's reflecting whose position? The son. Because everything was made through the son. Adam and Eve would work together and through Eve everything would be created. Adam recognized that and this is why she's called the mother of all living. Colossians 1:15 and 16 tells us about Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be, they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Eve was reflecting that. And this is how God has set it up. You understand now a little bit more, hopefully, why Adam was first formed and then Eve. God was telling a story to those who will understand, to those who were watching at the time. And those who we weren't there, but we read about it. But you know, I'll tell you something. I never ever in my life 
understood any of this when I believed in the Trinity. You cannot see the lessons that God is trying to portray when you have a false concept and a false understanding of who God is. It just doesn't make sense. You'll ask, why did God make Adam and Eve the way he did? Well, he's God and he does what he wants. Well, that answer might satisfy sometimes, but if you could actually understand God's ways and means, you start gaining insight into the wisdom of God. And you see, you realize God does things. And those, like, like he told you know, Daniel, the wise shall understand, but those who are not wise shall not understand. Christ is the wisdom of God. He desires us to understand these things. The angels understood. They weren't in doubt. They didn't have these issues. They didn't have these problems. They could see clearly what God was doing. Satan could see clearly what God was doing. And he was boiling with rage as he realized that the human race was the answer and the undoing of his charges against God. And so he says, we're going to focus our attack on these guys, the fresh creation. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Even after the fall, the, the lesson still continues. It says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. A lot of ladies don't like this passage, okay? But we're going to read it anyway. And I'll tell you why they don't like it. It's because some men abuse this passage. That's why it's, it's, it's not a favor, unfortunately. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. What God is saying here is not some arbitrary, uh, you know, idea. Look, we'll just make man the head wives. You know, you're the ones to submit. God has a reason behind that. The reason is revealed in the story of Adam and Eve. The reason is understood. We will understand that great controversy that God has designed the wife's position to reflect the loving, submissive position of the son of God. That's the privilege that's been given to them. God has designed that the man is to reflect the position of the head of the family as God the Father is the head. You with me? And so this, you know, the whole thing in the world today with the feminist movement and all this stuff, it says all this stuff is outdated and ancient and is for cave people. We are enlightened today. Men and women are equal and equal rights and all that stuff. The question, brothers and sisters, is not a question of equality. We saw Adam and Eve were equal in nature. Before God, they are equal. But they, all, they both have been given unique and special responsibilities and privileges in the relationship of the home. And that is a reflection of the heavenly one. That's why you understand the devil has a hatred for the biblical family model and is trying to destroy it. Because what he's really doing is he's destroying God's image. That's what he's doing. The two institutions that we get from Eden are what? Marriage and? The Sabbath, both of them were designed to tell an accurate description of God. That's why Satan is attacking both. The family is a very, very mighty weapon to preach the truth about God. Do you realize that? A family that is well-ordered after the godly biblical principle is a powerful weapon. Now, the reason I said, you know, a lot of uh, women don't like this, unfortunately, is because the men sometimes abuse, <coughs> oftentimes abuse, the position of authority that's been entrusted to them, and they beat their wives over their head with this. Submission, brothers and sisters, is not enforced. It is not commanded. It is earned. It is God-given, but when it is re reflective of what God designed it to be, then God blesses that. But because of the abuse of that, and sadly, a lot of ladies have a miserable lot in life because a lot of women, a lot of men 
abuse their responsibility. And, and, and so it's a cycle. So the, the women's uh, feminist movement is not just the, the, the ladies' uh, problem. You know, they just need to get over it and just realize that the men are, are in charge. That's not the issue. There is a devil behind it who is trying to destroy it. And uh, in like manner, the position that the wife, uh, that God has given to the wife, there is a, an abuse of that and a rebelliousness against that. No, I don't want to submit. I don't want what God gave me. I want to do my own thing. Both men and women, brothers and sisters, as a result of sin, we have this temptation to abuse and reject the responsibilities that God has entrusted to us in these roles of headship and submission. Headship and submission is not uh, something that shows one is better than the other or that there is an inequality that exists. Hopefully we'll see that a little bit more as we go. But uh, <clears throat> when we look at uh, the father and the son, it actually helps us to see what a, a perfect headship looks like. When we look at the son, it helps us see what a perfect submission looks like. It's a beautiful relationship. For example, here's a good motto for Husbands, the Bible says of the father that he loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Husbands, have you given all things into the wife's hands? Or does the poor wife have to resort to telling us once and twice and ten times before we do something or before we get something? And, and the poor thing has to resort to that terrible nagging I'm sure they don't like it, but they're out of options. The husband is to be a provider, a protector, a sustainer. This is his God-given position. That's what the father is. He's the provider. He's the sustainer. He's the protector. He's the source of everything. That's the husband's position. That's a big responsibility, right, for us husbands? All the, all the ladies feel, yeah, tell them. Tell them, brother. <laughs> amen. Yes, all the ladies said amen. One lady said amen. Thank you. But that's the model. That's, that's the picture that we look at. And for the ladies now, here's the ladies' turn. The Bible says of the son, I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. In the New Testament, Jesus says, for I do always the things that please him. And all the men said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that right, brothers and sisters? I think most of us are married here, right? <coughs> you know, there's this tension in the home many times because of sin, as a result of sin. A tension to break away from the roles and responsibilities that God has given us. That's, that's the devil's work. But when we realize and understand it, this is a beautiful motto for the woman, for the wife at home. To do always the things that please the husband. But the husband sometimes makes that hard by, by not being a faithful head. You know, when a husband is a faithful head who is a provider and a sustainer, and the woman really lacks nothing as far as assurance and as far as providing for things, it actually becomes very natural for the woman to relax and just do the things that please him. It's a, for, it's a divine formula. And sin has not obliterated it or destroyed it. It's made it challenging. It's made it harder. But God is still designing that our homes are to be a reflection of the relationship between the father and the son. Because of who? The angels. The angels, brothers and sisters, are in our homes. When they are in our homes, what do they see? Do they feel just like at home in heaven when they see the relationship in our homes? 
Or when the angel is sent on assignment to brother such and such as home, we say, oh, don't send me there, please. <laughs> I don't like it. It just does not feel like up here. You know what I'm talking about? We have a high calling, high responsibility. Or on the, on the converse, of course, when the angel is sent to the other families, oh, yes, I love to go there. It feels just like home. That's why God created Adam and Eve the way he did. And so the biblical headship, brothers and sisters, the father is the head of the son, just as in reflection of that, the husband is the head of the wife. And the Lord also tells us that Christ is the head of the church, <clears throat> as we just read in Ephesians. And the pastor, who is usually the man, is the head of the church, representative of the true head of the church. He is an underling. He is a representative an underling, not a hireling, okay? There's, there's a difference. Under Christ. He is the under shepherd of the great shepherd of the church. And so the issue today that exists over women's ordination, the, the core issue at, uh, of debate is really a question of headship. This is really what it boils down to. I think you realize by now what, what my position is. I, I do not believe women's ordination is biblical. I'll say it just in case so nobody misunderstands me. If you do believe it's biblical, no problem. We can have a chat after. But the reasons, no, like, you know, discuss it. Discuss it in a friendly manner. Well, they're going to have a big chat about it in the GC. And, and I think the chat is, uh, I hope it will go well. But it, uh, there's a lot of reason to, to fear, brothers and sisters. It really might split things up in the church. Anyway. The question of headship and the question of authority, has God entrusted the position of headship in the church to the woman or not? This is really the question. It's not whether the woman can fill that post because she has talent or not. Some men are totally unfit. I mean, I, I realize that. Some ladies have fantastic abilities and talents to fulfill a lot of these things. But the question is, has God given that or not? This is the biblical model that we see consistently and yeah it's an order it's a, it's an order that we have from heaven and so i want to look at one particular verse to that in case somebody does believe in in that ordination of women should happen and equal rights and all that let's look at one bible text first timothy 3 2, 2 to 4 a bishop or an elder which is what we understand to be a pastor today as well. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, or filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. These are the qualifications of an elder. He has to be the husband of one wife. If you can find a woman who is the husband of one wife, then she qualifies. And some people say, no, well, this is written in a language. It actually means just the, uh, the husband or wife of one spouse, one partner. So if they have multiple partners, they don't qualify, but it doesn't matter as far as it being man or woman. That's not what it means. But nonetheless, verse 4 clarifies it for us. It says that this man needs to be one that rules well his own house. The evidence is his children are in subjection with all gravity. What does that mean? What is the biblical way for a man to rule well his own house? It is to be the head of his home and to, to have this position as a reflection of the father's position of authority. You see, the, the reason why the children are mentioned here is, is really uh, is key. 
How do children learn to submit to the authority of their father? There's one person in the family who holds it all together. It is as they observe the mother's submission to the father. You realize that? That's how they learn. We, I think all parents know that. They learn by not what you say. It's by what you do, right? By example and example and example. It is by observing the mother's submission, loving submission to the father that they learn the position of the father. And Paul says here, the qualification for an elder who is going to rule in the church, oh, bad word, not rule, but who is to be leading in the church to represent the position of Christ. He needs to be truly carrying out that role in his home. That's what it means when it says one that rules well his house. In like manner, how do the angels in heaven learn how to submit to God the Father? It is by watching and observing the son. You see, God doesn't tell them, I'm God, you submit to me, this is how you do it. They actually see how Christ relates to his father and they learn how as creatures they are to relate to the father. And this is why the Bible tells us that in Christ, all things consist or hold together. He is the linking pin between God the father and all creation. That's why he is the word of God. That's why he is the wisdom of God. And that is why when he came to create man, he chose to give to man this privilege of reflecting that divine position and divine relationship. It is to be reflected in the homes. And so God is saying here, when you pick an elder, you want an elder who is faithfully carrying out that responsibility or that duty or the head of his home, as we read in Ephesians, that the husband is to be the head of the home. And so to ordain a woman to that position, brothers and sisters, is to reverse the order is to actually destroy that order. It's to call black white and white black. What God put here, you say, no, it doesn't belong here, it belongs here. This is what women's, it's a question of headship and it's a question of authority. Don't be fooled by the issues of all oh, equality and all this stuff. It's really a question of authority. Does God have a right to, to uh, set things out the way he has or do we have a right to alter that because we are advanced, we are enlightened, we are no longer in those ancient times when these guys lived? Yeah. These are the arguments that are being used. The root for this problem really is our understanding and conception of God. If we have a true concept of the Father and the Son, as we just saw biblically, woman's ordination is an immediate non-issue. It does not exist. You realize this is what God is like. This is what he has set up. If we truly love him, we will accept the responsibility and position he has given us. The reason why women's ordination is an issue is because the image of God in people's minds is not the biblical image. It's a, it's a distorted picture, a philosophical concept called the Trinity. This is really the root of misunderstanding. In the Trinity, you do not have a clearly defined relationship of headship and submission. It does not exist. If it does exist, it's make-belief. It is not real. And so when you have a model before you that, has no, that doesn't have that, then of course it makes perfect sense that you're going to question that on earth. Say, you know what? There isn't really this headship-submission stuff. This was only cultural. You with me? Our concept of God shapes our beliefs and our behavior more than we think or realize. 
they're not going to be discussing the concept of God in the GC. They're just going to be discussing whether we ordain women or not, and they're going to go around in circles. And the one side is not going to change their side, and the other side is not going to change their side, and there's going to be a stalemate, and only God knows what the outcome is. The root of the problem is not being addressed, and so the problem is not going to be solved. We hope for the best, but we're expecting the worst, all right? Unfortunately. Anyway, we'll keep going. And so, women's ordination essentially says that we are to ordain for the pastor position, for the ministry, a lady, right? As the head of the church. If that is the case, then we should logically, consistently alter that relationship because we have to assume that if the woman is the head of the church, then that woman is the head in her household. Because there is to be one that rules well his house. That doesn't look right all of a sudden, does it? Straight away, you know, there's a problem with some passages in scriptures. But to be consistent, therefore, then we have to alter this relationship as well. To match, because it has to match. And in so doing, you have to also alter that relationship ultimately. That the father and the son position can interchange. Because if the man or the woman, either one can be the head in the church, then either one can be the head in the home, then really up in heaven, either one can be this or that, and it's an interchangeable position. You know which concept of God teaches that God's position in heaven is interchangeable? It is the Trinity. The biblical uh, picture that God's revealed about Himself is not interchangeable. The Father cannot be the Son. The Son cannot be the Father. He is really a Father. He's not the Son. The Son, He is really a Son. He's not just pretending or playing and he can just, you know, put on a different hat and be another role. This is what's presented in that philosophical concept of the Trinity. Let me just show you a few quotes to that effect. We're almost there. The apostolic benediction in that verse lists the three names, uh, Christ for, lists the three names and, Christ, and names Christ first. Paul usually places God the Father first, but here it is reversed. To me, this signifies the interchangeableness of the members of the Godhead, since they are one in action and in purpose. This is by Brother Spangler in the Review and Herald of 1971. You see, this is the concept of God. The members of the Godhead, the word Godhead there is used to, to mean a, you know, a membership of three. The members of the Godhead are interchangeable. You can put one in place of the other. Here's another one that's a little bit more uh, explicit or, or clear. But imagine, this is from the Sabbath school lesson. It says, but imagine a situation in which the being we have come to know as God the Father came to die for us. And the one we have come to know as Jesus stayed back in heaven. We're speaking in human terms to make a point. What's the point he's making? Nothing would have changed except that we would have been calling each by the name we now use for the other. That is what equality in the deity means. Sabbath School Lesson 2008. You remember that statement? Maybe, maybe not. Notice what equality in the deity means here. It means what? Interchangeableness. So when, when co-equal is used, you're familiar with that term? It also means interchangeable. Well, no wonder you can interchange then the position of man and woman in the home. And in the church, if your God is like that. This is what the Trinity says. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. That's the fundamental belief of the church. Interchangeable. I have news for you. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
And brothers and sisters, you have to realize something else as well. If your God is interchangeable in the positions that he has revealed himself as, it means God is not really who he says that he is. And if you believe God is interchangeable, and then, of course, well, you can put a woman in the church because that's interchangeable with the man. Then it's also logical and consistent to interchange the position in the marriage. Well, it can be man and woman, but it can be man and man. It's interchangeable. And also it can be woman and woman. Well, it, just, it doesn't matter because God is like that. That is the consistent and logical conclusion for a false idea of God. If your God is interchangeable, then why not interchange roles and positions in marriage? You see what Satan has done? By destroying the true picture of God, he is destroying everything that depends on that. He's destroyed the family. This is, this is a problem we have today, right? Every other day we hear about a country either arguing or legislating about gay marriage. That's an agenda that Satan has. And that agenda is not just for the world. It's knocking on the church. It's, it's, it's coming to many churches. And you know what? The issue of women's ordination in our church is only the entering wedge for what logically is going to follow. And time will tell. Brothers and sisters, we're in very serious times. The family weapon that God has given to us is being abused and taken out of our hands. This is why a well-ordered biblical household is a powerful witness for the truth and a mighty witness against Satan. It is based, it's actually the strongest way you can preach the truth about God. You realize that? It's in our homes. You're getting up here and saying the verses and all that. People say, you know, I wish I could go and speak and share the verses. You know what? There's a much better and stronger witness for the truth. It is in the homes. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives. Do you believe the truth about God in your homes? That's the challenge. It's easy getting up here and saying verses. That's the easy part. The hard part is that when the wife is in your ear and the stuff is happening and the world is collapsing. You know what I'm talking about? And then add the kids to the mix and it's, oh boy. That's where our beliefs, brothers and sisters, meet the road. Okay, let's keep going. First Corinthians 15, 28. And when all things shall be subject, uh, subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The Son is subject to the Father, not as an inferior being, not because he is less. Why is he subject? Because he knows that his Father is the source of all things. His Father is the Godhead. And as a loving Son, he recognizes that and is subject to his Father. It's not a question of equality. And so we find that this is the model that is given to us in the scriptures. All things are of the Father through the Son, through the Son they receive life or spirit. And when God created Adam, he set up the exact same thing. He created Adam first, Eve is from Adam, and Eve bestows, or through Eve, every other human being receives life. This is how God did it. And this is how the angels are learning. That's why in Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God never said very good before, right? Every day before that was good, good, good. When he comes to the sixth day, it is very good. Why? Now on earth, you have a small scale picture of what heaven is like. And now it is very good. It's with Adam and Eve in their rightful positions. And all the angels said, Amen. 
when they watched that and they sang for joy as well. Isn't that right? That's what the Bible tells us. Okay, I had a review chart here. I'm going to skip it because I think we got it all. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. I want to put it to you, brothers and sisters, that the apostles are not the only spectacle. You and I are a spectacle. What does spectacle mean? It's like a theater, something you watch, right? And who is watching? The world and angels and? Men, the angels are watching you and me in our homes. What do they see? Yeah. This is the challenge. We have to, uh, the, the truths that we believe have to be practical. They have to reflect in our behavior, in our experience. They are not theories that we hold. Just because you believe the truth about God does not mean anything. If the truth about God has not changed you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better father or a better mother and made you realize the great and high privilege that we have in this calling to be reflectors of the Father and the Son for the angels. We always think when we get to heaven, the angels, you know, it'll be so nice to talk to angels. They know so much and, and you know, they must have protected us in this accident or meet my guardian angel and ask him about this. And you know what I'm talking about? We have these discussions sometimes. Perhaps we never think that when we get to heaven, our angel will shake our hands and say, thank you. In your home, I learned something about the Father and the Son. Is that even possible? Maybe we never thought of that. The angels, it says here, they're watching. You know they're learning? You know that up until the cross, there were things that they still did not understand, that at the cross they realized and understand? We have this concept of angels that it's like they're, they know everything. They don't. They're creatures like, like us. And they learn more about God as they grow. Part of their learning experience, God has given to us. Do we realize that? Wow, all of a sudden, that, 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 that does a wow to me. You know, it's wow, the family and the home. Wow, this is a much bigger picture than perhaps we thought or realized. And so this is God's purpose. Does your family answer these questions in the minds of the angels? Or not? That's a high calling, that's a challenge, brothers and sisters. And so the time will come when that lesson will have been learned. And Luke 20, verse 34 and 30 to 36 says, And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. This is a question a lot of times I'm asked, are we going to have marriage in heaven or not? And some people say, well, yeah, no, in heaven we won't during a thousand years, but when we come back to the new earth, we will. I have some news for you. Jesus, according to what Jesus taught, there's going to be no more marriage. Why is that? Because the lesson has been learned and there's no need now for individual families. We're all going to be members of one big family that fully believes and understands the father and the son. God has something much better in store. Some, some couples are really devastated by this. You know, I've, I've talked to enough people. To some, this is, oh, no marriage in heaven. And, you know, but I know them so well. It doesn't mean you're going to stop knowing them. You know? that, that history and those memories that we've developed uh, you know, between loved ones, our spouses especially, it's not going to evaporate into thin air. But God has a plan in store for us that's much better than we expect or think. And so this is, in closing, and this is the challenge of this study, Adam and Eve versus the Trinity. If anything, brothers and sisters, if anything, Adam and Eve prove, they do not prove that three equals one. Not at all. We didn't learn that in school, right? If you did that in math in school, you'd fail. Teacher would fail you. 
but in the infinitely more important realm of worship, we accept absurdities that we would not pass for in school. You realize that? Yeah. Math is not as important as who you worship. This formula is not correct, it's wrong. If you borrow money from a bank, if you borrow $300,000 and come back and give them back 100,000, say my pastor says three equals one, they're gonna put you in jail, <laughs> right? Now you're laughing and that illustrates the point. It's not accepted in a worldly tempor uh, temporary thing. And when it comes to the infinitely more area of our worship and our eternal life, we are ready to accept absurdities. We need to wake up brothers and sisters. Here's a formula that does work. Two does not equal three. Adam and Eve, two beings, do not prove three beings, do not prove a trinity. I pray that uh, the challenge of this study will be taken to heart. I don't wanna just preach theology. I wanna challenge us to be true believers in our homes because of the angels. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.